Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Oil prices. I think there's at least $10 a barrel of uh, Ukraine in the price of oil. The reason for that is that if we really sanction the Russians, we'd uh, exclude some or all of their banks from the SWIFT system, how banks communicate with each other. Uh, we did this with 20 Iranians back during the Trump administration. It's quite effective, and it would result in losing two, three, four million, two, three or four million barrels a day of exports from Russia temporarily. So I think there's at least $10 a barrel of Ukraine in the $85, $90 WTI price. Interestingly enough, the backwardation has just gone up. In other words, backwardation, in other words, next year's price versus or 22 price versus 23 price was around $8. Now it's more. So it doesn't really affect the 23 price and the 24 price that much, or even the second half 22 price, but it does affect the current price. So I don't really think if you own Pioneer or EOG or Magnolia or Diamondback or some of these pretty good oil companies, I don't think it means too much. But I promise you that if the price of oil goes down because somehow Ukraine gets settled or becomes less of a problem, it'll impact the equity values in the near term. Settling Ukraine seems unlikely, so I think a full-out invasion is not too likely, but keeping the pressure on and trying to get have the Russians, I, I think this is partly a matter of having Putin be more popular in Russia. I think part of it is political, but that's now OPEC continues to increase by 400,000, or OPEC plus by 400,000 barrels per month, but it really only turns into around 150 because most of the countries can't make their, can't increase their production. I mean, Saudi can and the Arab Emirates can, but the Saudi minister was asked on the sidelines of a conference whether uh, he was concerned about this. And uh, he gave a very snappy reply. He said concern wasn't in his vocabulary. So I think the Saudis liked the price and realized that many of the countries can't increase. So, And the other thing that OPEC continues to communicate is they don't think Omicron is going to be much of a problem for oil demand. So as long as there's not another variant, with the proviso that there's at least, must be at least $10 of Ukraine in the price, uh, it looks pretty healthy. Natural gas prices uh, weaken in the near month in the fourth quarter because it was too warm. But we fixed that. This cold weather in January really did the job. So uh, natural gas is on a better footing. We're, you know, we've gotten far enough along through January to the 2nd of February where we are going to have a pretty decent winter. If you measure it degree days in Central Park, we're about 160 degree days behind normal. Uh, normal is around 4,200 in the year July 1 to June 30. And uh, it'll this, whether it's for heating oil like SGU or natural gas, is going to come out fine. One interesting phenomenon, which uh, was in Platts this morning, the average gas price in Boston was $20 in January. 
and the average gas price in Pennsylvania was probably, I don't know, $5 or something. The difference, you think $15 gas would get from Pennsylvania to Boston. The problem is there isn't enough pipe capacity. So the alternative in the winter is to use LNG imports. There is an LNG tank in Boston Harbor, and then there's an offshore buoy, which hadn't been used since 2019, but it was used uh, this January. So, of course, LNG prices have been $30. So if your alternative is 30 obviously, you're going to bid up the spot price. So not good if you live in Boston because your heating bills are higher or your power bills are higher, but there's no way to really fix it. You, you based on you know, 20 days or 30 days or 40 days during the winter when you have this big differential between Pennsylvania isn't enough, doesn't give you enough uh, economic incentive to build a pipe to solve the problem because the rest of the year, once it starts to get warm, then uh, the differential between the Boston price, uh, which is called the Algonquin price, which is kind of their storage field there and the uh, or their pipeline there. And Pennsylvania goes down, so it might only be 20 cents or 30 cents, not enough to pay for a pipe to go there. The export demand is excellent. Uh, export capacity is being fully, uh, LNG export being fully used. This is good for the Marcellus companies. They pretty much are the gas companies you want to own. There isn't much else other than Comstock, which is a Hainesville company. And uh, gas looks promising. In terms of interest rates and effect on equity valuations, there's two sides of this issue. There's the side that argues that with reduced federal spending and uh, Fed balance sheet running off, so it, it got up to $9 trillion and they'll start it down, I think, probably in May or June or something like that. They'll increase the Fed funds rate. That The combination of that plus the slowing economy, you know, slowing federal spending because we won't be spending all this money for COVID relief will cause a slowing in the economy. And when the economy slows, uh, economists look for the yield curve to get inverted. What that means is that the two-year rate will be flat or higher than the 10-year rate. They're basing that the way it's worked in the past. Uh, that's, that's one way to look at it. And if that's what happens, I don't see that much impact on equity valuations. I mean, the thing you worry about is over the last five years, as Fed combated COVID and uh, we overspent our federal, you know, our federal deficit, you know, has been running at three trillion a year. Our 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 federal debt now is thirty trillion dollars. That induced an overvaluation of assets, especially uh, the stock market. But if it comes out the way some economists predict, then you have a two-year rate, which would be like the Fed funds rate, let's say you have five increases next year of a quarter point each. So that takes the Fed funds rate from zero to one and a quarter. And a 10-year bond, which is currently around 170, 175, pops out at two. I don't see that that on its own is going to cause a downward valuation of equity values. The other way to look at it, the other opposite and the way to predict, you know, the other opposite prediction is that with the federal balance sheet declining, Federal Reserve balance sheet declining from nine, and apparently it'll go down when they stop reinvesting. Well, first of all, they stop buying securities and then they stop reinvesting in the maturities. It'll go down at the rate of 
about as quickly as it came up, you know, like about 120 billion a month, which would be like one and a half a year, and a trillion a year. It seems to me that if our federal deficit is still around a trillion dollars, and so the federal government has to has to raise a trillion dollars, plus the market has to cope with the fact that a trillion and a half dollars is being liquidated. Uh, interest rate is a price, just like the price of gasoline or the price of hamburger meat or whatnot. And and I would expect the price to go up. Why would anyone want to buy a 10-year bond for 170 or 175 when they want 350 or four? Well, how do you get to 350 or four? Well, if your inflation rate, which is six or 7%, comes down some, which it seems likely, say it comes down to 3%, uh, don't you want to have a real rate of return? In other words, shouldn't the 10-year bond be the inflation rate plus one percentage point or one and a half percentage points? That's the part that I, that's what I believe is the outcome, but that is definitely the minority view. The view that, you know, it'll be like 2% and you'll have an inverted is definitely the majority view. So we'll know all this by this time next year. And it's very important in terms of uh, how, equities behave. And uh, it's a situation where I've gotten to the point through reading and listening to people and whatnot, I can't tell until a week ago or so. I was thinking, well, of course, it's going to go to three and a half or four percent. Now I can't tell. I'm reminded of the uh, bank CEO said, please, please, please get me a one-handed economist. I don't like this on the left hand and on the right hand. But right now, I just think it's kind of unknowable. So the thing to do is to keep some cash reserves and in the things you own or things you're looking at, make sure they have good cash flow characteristics so that they don't need to raise money, that if their stock is lower, they can they can buy in stock, try to prefer companies that pay a dividend that goes up every year. Seems to be the way to have, you know, way more than half of your investable assets. And with that, uh, blown through my half of the 30 minutes, you have to get on to Mike's stuff. I did, over the weekend, look at the latest 10Qs for four companies. I think we mentioned this last Wednesday. Looked at uh, Intel, Taiwan Semiconductor, Advanced Micro Devices, and NVIDIA. And uh, Mike and I talked a bit yesterday about it. But I think even though maybe new CEO who was at Intel when he, he actually worked his way through Stanford working at Intel's real is very impressive story. Uh, maybe he can turn it around. But if you look at Intel and Taiwan Semiconductors actually make the chips, and it seems to me one of the disadvantages of Intel and Taiwan Semiconductor is they have huge cash flow. But I mean, look at Taiwan Semiconductor. They're going to spend in the next year $40 billion in CapEx. I mean, we try to run, imagine these companies or try to evaluate these companies based on cash flow after CapEx, free cash flow. And the CapEx in Taiwan Semiconductor is going to continue to be very high. Intel will be even higher. Intel will overspend its cash flow for sure, uh, trying to uh, catch up with Taiwan Semiconductor. So to me, NVIDIA and AMD are much more attractive from a cash flow point of view because especially NVIDIA always generates more cash than it uses. Now, the flip side of it is if you look at the free cash flow in NVIDIA, it's trading about 2% free cash yield. Or put another way, if you take the free cash and you multiply times 50, that, that gives you the stock price. And with that, I want to have 
Mike uh, comment on, uh, on interest rates. He's been doing some work trying to correlate uh, interest rates against how tech companies especially trade. And also, he is, knows NVIDIA backwards and forwards, knows a lot of these companies backwards and forwards. So I've kind of come up with my way of looking at it now the rest of the time with me interjecting once or twice. You want to hear from Mike. Okay, sounds good. So let's start with interest rates. I, with the context that I don't have the same tenure of experience that Hunt has, I kind of feel that we in the U.S. are entering a regime of negative real yields that may sustain for a long period of time, much like has happened in Europe. It's not logical and it doesn't make sense (laughs) necessarily all the time. But the reason that it's really important or at least people talk about it being important, and I'll bring a caveat to that in a second, is because the way stocks are valued is based on their cash flows. And technology stocks, and really more specifically, growth stocks, tend to have more of their value pushed farther out into the future. And therefore, when you discount those value, those cash flows back to today, the effect of an increase in interest rates is going to affect growth stocks more heavily. Now, I did an analysis back in, I believe it was December, when the correlation between the 10-year and the valuation of these SaaS companies got very high. And the reason that I did that is that my question was, is this something that is persistent? Because we've, in the past decade, we've interest rates have gone up. If you remember around 2016, 17, 18, I think maybe 2018 is about when they peaked. I remember that distinctly because our we bought our first house and the mortgage was four and a half percent. And relative to the last 10 years, that was pretty high. <laughs> Anyways, that all that is to say is that we've got enough data to be able to look and assess that. Um, the long story short is the correlation is not that high among software companies and the the 10-year interest rate. So why did it get correlated in December so heavily and why has it remained so right now? It's a good question. And I think you could speculate a bunch of different things happening. One being the logic of it is very clear. Two, there's this fear of inflation and the fact that maybe those interest rates would have to get a lot higher. So maybe that sparked a narrative. And then you, the third thing you have to think through is that a lot of trading, at least in the short term, not longer term investors like like us, is being done on algorithms. And those algorithms sometimes are built to adapt to specific correlations that are happening in the market. So if enough people start following something, it kind of becomes true for a little while until longer term investors kind of step in and and make those corrections. Or or Um, what I would inject until the the expression is the trade gets too crowded. Then someone says, hey, there's too many people on that side of the ship and there's an opportunity to go to the other side of the ship is what happens with yep. these algorithms sometimes, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. So a couple of things to take away from there is that just because something becomes highly correlated in for a period of time doesn't mean that that will persist for a long time. And two, for the buy and hold long-term investor, you can very easily still outmaneuver some of these high-frequency trading firms and whatnot, they have a different perspective and a different outlook, and they're making money on a totally different thing. If you're looking to hold companies for the long term, you're looking for quality businesses and these things like correlations that may not be actually have a causal relationship, yes, you could make money off them in the short term, but that's not the place for people like us, at least not for me. So 
with that, why don't we move into Intel and AMD? We'll start, and well, Intel, AMD, NVIDIA, Taiwan Semiconductor. We'll talk about those guys for a little bit. We've been talking about Intel and the, the challenge in front of them. AMD just announced earnings and had an absolutely blowout quarter. They're stealing market share in laptops, especially. They're stealing market share in servers, which is kind of scary for Intel because a lot of their new server chips are relatively low margin. So even though they're sort of catching up, even on a lower, um, on their 10 nanometer process versus AMD 7 nanometer, they're sort of catching up in performance, but still not quite there. They're losing market share and their margins aren't as good. So the one plus side to that is in the short term, they're going to have to move over to Taiwan Semiconductor to produce their next latest generation of chips. And when they do that, their margins are likely only going to get worse from here, not to mention all the depreciation that's going to be coming out of these huge CapEx investments that they've got. So headwinds for NVIDIA continue. I still think the turnaround story would be one of the most exciting business cases of this, definitely of this decade. If Microsoft is the best turnaround of the last decade, then Intel has the potential to be the largest turnaround of this decade. I would say that the job that Pat Gelsinger has in front of him is actually far more challenging than Nadella's job. So we'll keep how, watching. How that. long? Let me just interject, Mike. How long do you think it would take to get Intel either in their new facilities in Arizona or they're just breaking ground or about to break ground in Ohio? How long would it take them as a reasonable expectation to get that to where they could match the performance of the Taiwan semiconductor chips? I think the key for their strategy is to sort of leapfrog. And the key is the delivery of the ASML lithography machine, which is slated for, I believe it's late 2024, early 2025. So that would be the delivery date. There's time to set up, time to get yields correct and all of that stuff. Not to mention the technology risk of being on that node. I don't know if that's two nanometer or what process it actually is, but it's whatever that that next generation of machine coming from ASML will be. So that's when we'll have an idea as to whether they can still play with Taiwan Semiconductor. You got to remember, Taiwan Semiconductor is going to be on that node as well. When did Taiwan Semiconductor get its set of the latest ASML equipment? Would that so, have been two or three years ago, or when did they start to gain their advantage? So the way Taiwan Semiconductor has rolled out their leading edge stuff has been mainly because of their relationship with Apple. Apple has pre-committed to and worked very closely with Taiwan Semiconductor in launching the leading edge. And that counts for five and the four nanometer as well. The three nanometer is being led, I believe, by MediaTek and maybe even AMD, which that was kind of an interesting decision for Apple not to commit to that next generation. They probably came to the conclusion that they were so far ahead of the competition when it came to hardware that the early investment in the next node probably wasn't worthwhile and they could wait till the next generation, if you will. And we kind of see that in the performance of their chips relative to the Qualcomm and MediaTek chips that are available for Android phones. Hmm. How 
if Intel is able in by 25, say, 25 and 26, to handle NVIDIA's business or AMD's business, do you think they will take that capability to do the fastest chips, the thinnest wafers? Will that be available on a foundry basis, or will they try to make Intel designs with that capability? So that's a good question. So there's a couple pieces here. One, let me point out that the biggest existential threat to Intel is not AMD, who also makes x86 chips. Although there is a hanging question as to how much of this could just be done by AMD versus Intel. But the biggest existential threat is actually from ARM. Now, ARM, as we know, is no longer going to be acquired by NVIDIA. There's questions as to the funding and the long-term viability, but the truth is the ARM CPUs are like the biggest threat to Intel. The Those would be commissioned by people like Apple or other people doing uh, servers like Microsoft and Amazon and whatnot? So Microsoft, Amazon, absolutely. The other one would be like a Qualcomm. There's definitely a push among companies like Amazon to move to ARM architecture. They also have the gravitas to be able to force people to move to that architecture. But what that means is that a lot of old code base that's written for x86 needs to be rewritten to work on ARM. And that's not an insignificant amount of work. So Intel does have an opportunity. What Gelsinger's talking about does make a lot of sense in licensing the IP of x86 in a way that can meet some of the needs of those hyperscalers. But if at the end of the day, the ARM processors are more efficient per watt hour basis, which they are, than the x86 processors, then I don't see the hyperscalers changing their general course. There's always going to be a need for x86, but at some point, you could project that x86 will be a buggy, a buggy whip, if you will, in the world of computing. Just, uh, I think I know what Mike needs by hypercenters, but that would be the very large server farms. Hyperscalers would be your AWS, Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, and Google Cloud, with a number of smaller ones kind of falling behind them. Yeah. And the thing about that server market is it's going to have to be more efficient and be able to do more. Let me see if I can draw my count on this. Be able to do more graphics and whatnot. I mean, especially to the extent that the games, you know, Microsoft has just made this large acquisition to be more of a factor in the game business. And, uh, you know, to the extent that games are streamed and played on your iPhones and whatnot, this has to put, has to mean that you have to have more competence, more capability mm-hmm. in your hypercenters. Right. Which means faster, faster processors and if the ARM processors are faster and Intel just can't catch up, how big a job is it to write the code to, to do ARM? I mean, who does that? I mean, presumably, you everyone talks about artificial intelligence and whatnot. And in one of the articles about Gessinger, what I think they said a lot of that code for the 6 was 
done by a machine. I mean, it's so we're not talking about hundreds of people writing code. It, that doesn't happen anymore. You actually you actually write the code with code. Is, is that a way to think about it? Think about it as like the building blocks of software architecture. So like there is a lot of low-level computer code that would need to be written written. From the perspective of transporting an existing program that runs an x86 to ARM, it sometimes has an opportunity to clean up a messy code base or whatever, but it requires man hours is what is the point. I don't know of, of much in the way of artificial intelligence technologies that are being used to make push that make that faster, but there, that very well could be the case. All right. Well, we're getting into the weeds here. We've just about run out of time. I think we'll continue with this. And next week, I think, because it's something that Mike's really interested in, I've been able to do a bit of work. We're going to focus on a couple of the software companies. I mean, we'll try to finish up on NVIDIA and AMD and Intel and and Taiwan Semiconductor, but we're also going to focus on uh, Snowflake and Salesforce. And there the issues are, you know, are they growing? Uh, well, obviously they are growing, but will they get to a point where they there's economies of scale? Both of those companies now, especially Snowflake, uh, looks as though that they operating loss. In other words, the amount they spend on marketing and R&D exceeds the amount of revenue, less the cost to produce that revenue. And the question is, will they be able to get to a point where they do have free cash flow? Typically in these businesses, capital spending is kind of on the light side, but uh, marketing and R&D are, are really big issues. And what people do, what analysts do, if you read reports on these companies or ones like them, they say, well, this is the amount of marketing cost or R&D cost they, that they would have to spend to just maintain it or to have a business that grows 10% rather than 20 or 30%. So that really these are investments just like capital spending. I'm a little skeptical about that, but that's something else we'll get in. What we're trying to do, especially with these market downturns or potential market downturns because of interest rates, is try to find the companies that are the keepers, the ones you buy and and hold for 10 years. And if we are going to have a settling of these companies, how do you pick the one you want to buy? Let me just close with a, for instance, I'm a, Etsy and I are longtime happy owners of Amazon. I think we're up, I don't know, 10 or 11 times. If you owned Amazon in 21, you're actually down about 3 or 4%. And it's down some more this year. Now, Amazon will announce their earnings, I think, after the close tomorrow. don't think there's anything particularly wrong with the business. I mean, it is a little worrisome that Jeff Bezos now is retired, in effect, and turned the CEO role over to someone else. I mean, that's a concern. He has been the not just the founder, but the driving force. But... You know, has something changed at Amazon? Because Amazon does generate free cash flow. There's something different. My view is happy Amazon stockholders. Nothing's changed. It's just the valuation came down. But in the case of Salesforce and Snowflake, the question is, can they outrun that R&D budget, that marketing budget? In the case of the companies we're just discussing, obviously Intel's in a really difficult spot. And, uh, 
Taiwan Semiconductor is stolen a march on them. And then NVIDIA and AMD are there. They just design the chips and the software and whatnot. So they don't have the issue of having to try to make it. So it's uh, a different business there. You know, NVIDIA seems to have a great future ahead of it. It's done very well in the past. Then it just becomes a matter of uh, valuation. With that, we're a little bit over. Anything else to add, Mike? Yeah, I think that's it for this week. Lots of earnings between now and yeah, next week. Lots of earnings to sort through, yeah. Yeah. Here in the Northeast, we uh, remember the cold weather's good for fossil fuels and whatnot. But stay warm, stay healthy. Talk next week. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.